Hello, this is Dr. Lee Hildebrand with our next edition of the Lakeshore Psych Podcast. And today we are going to be delving into a topic uh, that may have influence on many of you that are tuning in, and that is how to help your aging parents. And I have a special guest with me today. She has uh, decades of experience, expertise uh, in this very field itself. Uh, she has been really a pioneer in the Milwaukee area with some of the types of approaches. She's done some research. She's been part of uh, care management services in multiple sectors of Milwaukee and had her own private firm for many years, which she had eventually sold. And now she does consultation. Uh, many people seek her expertise out. And with me today, I have Phyllis Brostoff, MSW. Great to have you on the podcast today, Phyllis. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. I can't wait to talk about some of these things because I know there are listeners that, you know, either, you know, have parents that are beginning to age or get into a phase uh, where they, you know, really don't know what they're doing in terms of trying to help their parents. And I know this topic for myself is uh, near and dear to my heart. I had my own father uh, have struggles over the last uh, number of years with dementia, and we really had to walk down that road with him. And it, it was very challenging in terms of trying to find the right resources and, um, you know, just many challenges. And so uh, he passed this last November, and, and hopefully this is in honor of him and, and also helping others out there that are having these kinds of experiences. So, let me ask you this question. You know, if you had to indicate something that you're most passionate about in regard to this topic area, what might that be? Well, I, it's, you know, I, the whole subject of helping people dealing with their own aging process and the challenges that uh, families have with assisting their their elderly parents, aunts, neighbors, you know, anyone in that inevitable stage of life that uh, poses its special challenges. I'm just extremely interested in our elements. And I, it's been my whole career, basically, except for just a couple of years when I did something else. I have spent the last uh, 50 years, you know, working in this area. So, and now I'm old, being 78 and all. Uh, so I'm, you know, it's, I feel very lucky that I myself and my husband are in very good health, but you know, it's, Oh, that's it's, nice. Yeah, it is. But, you know, everyone around us, so many, you know, people, we, our own cohort and um, our friends, families, and you know, they, it, it just, if you, <laughs> you know what they say in one of the little uh, titties, you know, little jokes of, in the field is what's the alternative? Either you get old <laughs> <laughs> or you die. So, you know, right. It's, uh, <laughs> and, and and you keep moving. Right. Well, and you you know, and actually, that's one of the challenges is that people do need to keep moving, mm -hmm. uh, and sometimes they get you know there can be it, you know the, one of the big insights I think that is important for uh, for families dealing in this arena is that the elderly person is usually most concerned about maintaining their independence mm. and the and the generation below them the the uh adult children 
are usually very concerned about the safety of their elderly relatives. Yes. And that is a challenge to overcome that balance. So it's a balancing act. Yes. Safety and independence. So if you've got, you know, sometimes people, you know, and there's so many examples, but the typical prime example has to do with driving. I knew you were going to say that because I had that with my dad, too. Uh, He wanted to keep driving, even though, you know, he had some situations where he literally would have like a little mini swipe with another car and then, you know, get done at the end of the drive and get out and just kind of look, did something happen? I mean, it just didn't seem like he was aware of how dangerous uh, that could be. But what do you suggest uh, in some of these challenges for, um, you know, adult child that's seeing their parent wanting to have that independence, but also seeing some signs that there's some dangers to them having the same independence that they had? Well, I think that that specifically this driving situation is is so typical, you know, the family just has to really be willing to face it directly. And I don't think that's always easy. And it depends on the relationship, of course. I mean, you know, you're an expert on understanding relationships between people. And the if the family is able to have a direct one-on-one conversation that helps that deals with this specific situation. But what you said about your father, if there has been an accident like this, that somebody, you know, that he's the person has, uh, you know, driven the car into the into the uh, garage or had a fender bender of some sort, or, mm-hmm. you know, the thing that sometimes happens, you get a phone call from the police and they're with the elderly person mm-hmm. confused about where they are. Mm-hmm. I mean, we... We have we had a client who once drove to minute to upper the upper peninsula of, of Michigan. I mean, was lost for like three days. I just oh, got wow. in the car and just started driving, and then just didn't really know where they were going. I mean, yes. it was it can be very very frightening. So you can't ignore it, but it it and and sometimes a family just has to take very direct action of taking away the car keys. The obvious mm. thing. We had families um, take, you know, disable the um, battery. So the car is still there, but uh-huh. can't be driven. Because sometimes, you know, is it, you, it's hard to get literally, <laughs> to literally get the car out of the garage. Right. So you're, it sounds like you're saying, Phyllis, that you feel a direct approach, you, you know, is best in a situation, especially that magnitude where somebody else can get heavily injured or uh, a fatality could occur. And the person themselves. And there's a lot of things that can be done. You know, the, in fact, the, uh, a doctor can send in an, um, a request to the uh, motor vehicles department to say that this person, that they don't think this person should be driving anymore. Family members can make that request. But sometimes what happens in that situation, too, is the person will get the letter from the DVR saying you have to come in and take another exam. Uh, we're examining your license. And, you know, they it can, that can be the cause for, you know, a mini crisis. But sometimes people actually study again for the exam and manage to pass an exam. <laughs> So, you know, you every situation is very unique, but yes. it can't be ignored. I think yes. the main 
thing is it cannot be ignored because it is dangerous and it is. And there are other alternatives, particularly now. I mean, with Uber and Lyft and, you know, depending on where you live in the community, there are buses, there are, you know, there are um, car services and or people can move to a facility that has some transportation because most of the of the continuing care communities are places that have assisted living, independent living. Yes. They've got a little jitney bus of some sort that yes. will, you know, on twice once or twice a week, they take people to the shopping mall or to someplace to get groceries. Uh, they'll have, uh, usually they'll have a, a vehicle available to take people to doctor's appointments. Yes. Um, Would you say, Phyllis, that that's the place to start if you have a parent that you feel like um, you have some questions about their independence? Would it be to take a look at those daily living skills in terms of driving, being able to uh, call 911 if needed, being able to navigate in the household? Can you speak to some of that for uh, adult children that are just wondering, you know, it seems like my parent would still like to be independent, but I just, I really have some concerns. What are your, what's your advice to them in assessing well, the, that? The, well, there's kind of two levels and there's two kind of formal ways that have been organized to think about this. There's the activities of daily living. And those are the things that have to do with dressing yourself, being able to feed yourself, being able to, uh, you know, get in and out of bed, on and off the toilet. Mm-hmm. So those that falls into the area that's called it's ADLs, activities mm-hmm. of daily living. And then there are the instrumental activities of daily living, the I ADLs. And the instrumental activities are such things as being able to get yourself someplace, take your own medication, do your own, deal with your own finances. You know, uh, not not everybody balances a checkbook, but can you still write a check? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and know whom you're writing it to and for how much it is. Right. And so it's, you know, if somebody has it actually getting to become demented, there are some very specific signs that you can see that how that families can recognize that they need to move into a more formal diagnosis mm-hmm. because just forgetfulness is not dementia. Yes. You know, as one gets older or even younger people, you know, you walk into a room and you, you know, why was I coming into this? Absolutely. Well, you know, what I often tell uh, clients along those lines is that people that truly have dementia don't know that they're starting to slip in terms of their memory. So if, if your parent says to you, you know, my memory's not quite as good as it was last week, or I'm wondering about it's. That's not in and of itself is not an evident sign that necessarily dementia is at play. But can you speak to that in terms of, you know, for for a, a child that doesn't have expertise specifically in that, what are some of the signs that they should watch for? Well, there, you know, dementia is a very broad term. It covers many, many, many reasons that people are no do no longer have their own, you know, their thinking has been affected enough that their ability to manage their day-to-day life has to be is has happened that they can no longer manage their day-to-day existence so there are many forms of dementia because deme- there's the typical one that you hear the most about is the alzheimer's type of dementia yes um and but there are but people can become demented because they had a closed head injury even 
years before, you know, a, a car crash and they had a head injury and and eventually that brain, if there was some brain damage that had never really been understood, mm-hmm. that can cause dementia in the future, you know, at some future time. Yeah. Alcoholism can cause dementia. Um, people who, but there's a difference between short, you know, some problem that isn't uh, actual, that the person hasn't suffered from actual brain damage, mm-hmm. as opposed to some kind of change of mental status that's affected by some other reason. For example, some people have, you know, use as a sleeping aid a certain medication. An example is Ambien. Mm -hmm. And that can cause over a long period of time people to be, Mm. you know, not, you know, to have changes in mental status. That's actually not dementia. Like even delirium at times, right? Right. And it can be improved by discontinuing that, but then people are afraid they won't sleep. And I mean, everything is connected to everything else. So, but the, but it, there are some relatively simple things to look at that are to observe uh, that I think that people could recognize. One of them has to do with, um, when you walk into the person's house, are they opening the mail hmm. or not? Is there a pile of mail that needs to be attended to? Mm-hmm. Are they? Is the housekeeping itself slipping? Now, sometimes, uh, you know, there can be a couple and one of them dies and the other hmm. person, the dead person, this is the one who did most of the housekeeping. So that might not be caused by some change of mental status, mm-hmm. but if it is the if it is and usually just of this generation anyway usually the the wife or the woman in the household is the one who's kept up the house mm-hmm. so changes in you know in in housekeeping can be a sign that something needs to be attended to other kinds of uh, pretty easy to see things is you know and this is housekeeping too what is what's in the refrigerator mm. is the refrigerator full of deceased food <laughs> yeah how are they handling food how are they handling their garbage right and another really relatively easy to see thing is has the person lost weight without dieting in mm. the last 12 10 12 months mm. so if there's a just you know a drop of weight of more than 10 pounds or 10 pounds or more without dieting that's can be a sign of a change of mental status yes so the whole you know looking at the whole person there can be many many things. Now, you did mention one thing that I don't think is always true, that people don't realize that they're losing their minds. Mm. It depends on, again, what the situation is. There can be many times people do, and they're very frightened. Mm. Yeah, it can be a scary experience for them. Very scary to recognize that they don't, well, maybe they don't recognize somebody who they know they're supposed to. Mm. You yeah, know, now, again, distress. you would first look at other things, too. You would look at the same time, has there been a change in their eyesight, in their vision? Yes. Because that can, that has is their hearing affected? Yes. These are things that can really um, isolate people, and they may or may not be treatable. So vision and hearing usually is treatable. So, and, Phyllis, for those that are out there that are listening, that are maybe thinking, you know, my parent may have some of these signs, but I don't know for sure. Uh, I, 
you know, how do I get some help in determining? Now, for myself, in my situation, being a licensed psychologist, I have a background in this, and I was able to give a brief uh, mental baseline for my dad where I could really see those signs and then move forward. But uh, what would you recommend for people out there to try to get an evaluation with uh, a trained professional uh, to try to get some more information? What are your thoughts? Well, the, actually, the, the primary care physician has been in, in a stand, you know, a couple of years ago, uh, actually it was because of um, the uh, Affordable Care Act, Medicare basically dictated, you know, as part that there would be a yearly wellness examination. So anybody who's on Medicare should be getting an exam once a year mm. by their doctor. Now they may see many doctors, but their primary care physician has is now supposed to be doing this once a year that Medicare will pay for. It doesn't cost mm. the person anything, no matter what health plan they're in. And they the physicians are now supposed to be giving a simple exam because you know there are simple nine, 10 question and exams that uh, are that they're not diagnostic of what the exact problem is, but they are diagnostic to say further examination should be done. Yes. But the best way to get an actual really good understanding is to have a thorough neurological evaluation because, you know, there are paper and pencil tests that take several hours where yep. people can identify where you yourself know the difference between somebody has just got some memory loss or is their executive function affected? Mm-hmm. Um, so really be able to get more detail with that expertise. You're saying, first of all, start with the primary care physician. Right, that and then if good. there's a referral to say, hey, let's get some testing done here, right. uh, then we can go there. Now, what what do people do in situations where they really feel strongly, even on a, let's just call it a face validity test, meaning them looking at their parent and observing some of the things right. and saying, boy, I really think something's at play here, but their parent refuses to go to the doctor. Right. Well, it's it can be a challenge. I think that, you know, the person, the adult child can do some things like, for example, make the appointment themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, th- I think that and then accompany the person to the doctor, particularly if they're alone. You know, mostly people shouldn't go to doctors if they've got any change of mental status by themselves. Mm-hmm. They should be with somebody who can help identify and clarify what's actually going on because people will not necessarily answer questions that are in an, I'm not, you know, not that they're lying, but they're not necessarily accurately portraying their actual day-to-day existence. Mm. Um, So, and people can be very, very resistant to seeing a doctor, but mostly people don't resist seeing their primary care physician. Yeah, that's a good point. And and they probably feel a lot of comfort from having their son or daughter there accompanying them and and being supportive. Right. Um, Even if there are signs of dementia in in their thinking and even their mood is getting off a bit. Right, which oh. is a whole other set of things because mm-hmm. a change in mood can really be also very diagnostic. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, again, it gets back to what is the actual problem? You know, 
And there are brain imaging. I mean, there are ways to know so -hmm. that the Alzheimer's type dementia, you know, when they image the brain, it's literally smaller. Mm -hmm. You know, there was airspace inside your head. It has literally shrunk. Mm. But there can be other things. You know, my own father had uh, suffered from dementia, but he had a multi-infarct dementia. Mm. He had some, some, um, you know, stroke-like behavior in the brain. And he, and that, closed off blood enough to have damaged some of the parts of the brain. It depends on where in your head these things happen. So, you know, it can, it, and so they're knowing precisely by getting a good workup. Now it can take many months to get access to that good workup. Yeah, right. Uh, um, and, you know, it, here in Milwaukee, you know, Frederick has a dementia research clinic that's, mm-hmm. that's very, very good does diagnostic work workups, but there are other there are psychologists who just do the paper and pencil, and mm-hmm. that can be very, very useful. Yep, to at least get a baseline, right. uh, rudimentary baseline in terms of that. Well, yep. it, it can actually be very useful because it, it identifies um, people's loss of executive function. Mm-hmm. And when somebody has lost, and by executive function, you know, would you want to define it? Because, you know, the it's a psychological term. Well, yeah, that executive functioning is really in the frontal lobe of the brain or the front part of the brain. And it's the ability to make logical decision making and, and take logic as a pattern in terms of approach to things. And with dementia, that's a fundamental aspect of what begins to slip is that functioning. So these tests have uh, a sensitivity to them that can really start to tease that out with certain types of questions. And there may be some mathematical parts and some right. uh, object yeah. spatial aspects yeah. that can help tease that out. There's, there's a test called the, um, the clock test. Are you familiar with the clock? Yep. And that is amazingly diagnostic. And it's so simple. Can mm-hmm. you put, can you show us, you know, here's a clock, you know, make a clock face showing me 10 o'clock. Right. I mean, yep. it's so simple, but it's been very, very well documented that it is diagnostically useful. Yes. Uh, and and that's a simple thing that even an adult child could do uh, with their parent in that. So let me ask you this. Diagnosis, of course, but that could <laughs> right, right. <be> problem. <laughs> exactly. Well, let me ask you this. Uh, for adult children, if they do discover that their par- parent has dementia, I know there's some that really choose the path that they want to have the parent in their home or try to be, uh, provide personal care. And then others that feel a bit overwhelmed by that, depending upon the phase or stage of the dementia and the situation. Let's right. start with the first part. For those that want to maybe try to care for their parent in their home, what are some things that they need to be aware of? Along well, there's, those lines? there's some simple things like, you know, seeing that the house is, is, pretty um you know that it's set up in such a way that that possibility you know you want to reduce falls so for example are there a lot of throw rugs around mm. are there you know are it is if the person has to walk up steps is there a um you know something to hold on to when you're walking up the steps mm-hmm. uh are there is there a lot of clutter that that could cause a person to fall. I mean, there, you know, sometimes, of course, people have extreme situations that are, you know, people who are really basically hoarders. Yes. And 
they and then it, it maybe they're just on the edge and then because they are suffering from some change of mental status it has gone over the top so cleaning up and having a clear it, paths to bathroom to kitchen to you know uh to the front door yes <laughs> simple thing. So really thinking about how the house is organized in terms of their care. And then you just made me think of a resource that I've had families find very helpful. And I know you'll know this, and that is the book called The 36-Hour Day. It's Mm -hmm. a family guide to caring for people who have Alzheimer's disease and other dementias. Let me just tell the listeners the author. So it's The the 36-Hour Day. Nancy Mace, M-A-C-E, is the first author of that. Mm-hmm. Um, that can be helpful in terms of thinking about some of that, right? Right. Well, and it's called a 36-hour day because there are only 24 hours in a day. <laughs> so if you're dealing with somebody with dementia, it's an it's a task that takes uh, all your time. I it mean, feels like a 36-hour day. <laughs> well, and, and the reality is, is if, Again, it's not every, but it depends on what kind of dementia person has. But they often, there is a change of their sleeping patterns. So a person may be only be able to really be asleep for a couple of hours at a time. Mm-hmm. And it means that they might, you know, there's, it's a tip, it's not that unusual that they wake, somebody wakes up in the middle of the night, they think it's daytime. They look at the clock and, oh, it's three o'clock, but it's not three o'clock in the afternoon, Mm. three o'clock in the morning. They get up, they get dressed and they walk out the door. That can definitely happen. And again, there's some simple things that a family can do for this. For example, you can put a sign on the door that says, do not open. Mm. And mostly people, even if they're demented, still can read. Mm. And so we'll a follow instruction. kind of yeah. a, an instruction. Now it doesn't always, they don't always, but I mean, again, it's a, it's based, it's just many things. There are many things. And the Alzheimer's Association has a national website with a ton of, exp- of information on it. Um, and they, you know, they even have phone consults available. So it just depends, but they're, a person could be suffering from dementia caused by Parkinson's disease. Mm. At least 30% of people with Parkinson's also become demented. Mm. And yes. so the Parkinson's is what's being treated, but there's this other element to it that maybe sometimes isn't being treated. Yes. And unfortunately, there really is no there is no medication that really works for dementia. They've attempted different things. And it's all been really failures, basically. Yes. Um, uh, and they certainly can't be cured. I know there are medications like Aricept that can have a little bit of effect, but not in the very certainly. early phases, yes. in the very early stages. But it's social support. Mm. That is what helps a person with dementia, yeah. having the appropriate social support. And that is, you know, can come in many different ways. There are so you were talking about keeping people at home. If there are two, if there's a spouse and a, and a demented, you know, there's one of the spouses is demented. Yes. There are adult day programs people can go to. Mm. Uh, and that is very helpful f- to reduce those 24 hours, those 36 hours to less hours in a day so that, you know, the person's in a safe environment. It could be five days a week. It could be three days a week, but that the 
the well spouse, who's the caregiving spouse at the home, can take the person to the to this adult day program and know that they're in a safe environment in which they're getting appropriate stimulation and support, and then have that those hours to do the work that you have to do to just maintain a household or yes. go to the doctor themselves or see somebody and get some, you know, rest and relaxation for themselves, because it's very difficult. I always tell families, nobody in a family is more important than anyone else. Mm. So if there's a person with dementia, well, that person requires a lot of care or oversight, but the other person who's doing that also <laughs> needs yes. to be well, I think it's important too, Phyllis, and based on what you're saying too, is that the, the overall common welfare of the family is crucial. And, you know, it's important that adult children know if their parent has a condition that's just beyond their abilities really to care, that it's that they shouldn't feel guilty for looking at appropriate and well-appointed uh, dementia and memory care types of facilities that can be incredibly helpful. And I know we are so grateful for that uh, kind of support with my father. Um, I think sometimes people can feel guilty, right? Well, it's, yes, it can be very complex. And they and obviously my specialty as a social worker, which we call geriatric care management, Mm -hmm. is a resource for people too, that they can identify somebody who knows about all these resources and phases can sit down with the family and help them understand what they have to pay attention to, and then come up with a plan that they can implement to, to keep everyone safe. Uh, so it's, but in some situations, a move to a, a facility is very appropriate, but that is a complicated decision also. Uh, because it's an expense. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of times, again, just a little piece of what I've often told families is if if you're if a person's been in a home, they own their own home. Try not to think the person. Often the disabled person thinks, "Oh, I have to clean everything up first. And this is not just people with dementia. I mean, I'm talking about somebody who's become just frail for other reasons because there are many, many reasons that old people can be frail. And they think I can't possibly move out until this is done and that is done. And I figured out who gets the chest of drawers and whatever. Oh, yes. And I have often told families, if you can possibly afford it, move the person to where they want to go or where you want them to go and then clean out the house. Yes. That is great uh, advice. I've seen that practically in situations and it makes a lot of sense. And part of that is I think when you need to make this move with the progression of dementia, sometimes I think families will wait too long and the person with further advancements in dementia can be less cooperative. Have you seen that to be the case sometimes? It definitely can be. It's very, again, this is a complicated subject all in itself, it depends on what the dementia is about. I mean, if a person mm -hmm. has the diagnosis of frontal lobe dementia, mm -hmm. there's practically nothing you can do to make that person cooperate in any way. I mean, it's a very bad diagnosis. Yes. Now, not too many people have it, but that's why getting a good diagnosis is really useful because if that person's bad behavior, we'll call it, is caused by that kind of brain damage, 
they're not going to be able to participate in any good decision making, period. And you, the family just has to basically bite the bullet and decide if they can't be maintained at home, they have to go into a, into a facility that can actually take care of that kind of thing, yes. which is not easy because yes. these are combative people. Sometimes you have to get a good, you know, look at is there medication that can help yes. calm down? That doesn't always work. It's a very, the brain's a very complicated thing. Yes. It's damaged. It's hard. Yes. And well, Phyllis, people have to recognize it's brain damage. Yes, absolutely. And so, Phyllis, uh, as we're getting close to the end of our time today, let me ask you this. I know you continue to consult. Yes, I do. If somebody was listening and they wanted to reach out to you, um, how would they reach you? Well, they could call me at my telephone number, which is 414-961-0121. Or I have an email, which is very simple because it's my name at gmail.com. So it's P-H-Y-L-L-I-S-B-R-O-S-T-O-F-F, as in Frank. It's a, it's not an easy name to spell. <laughs> <laughs> and that's phyllisbrostoff.com? At gmail.com. Oh, dot com too. I have that. I have that email address too, but it's it's Phyllis at phyllisbrostoff.com or phyllisbrostoff at gmail.com. Okay. I have two. Great. So, yeah. And um, that that's so good to know because I know a lot of people can just feel a bit overwhelmed, you know, by the situation. There's just so many emotions that can go with it. Um, Absolutely. And a good consultation. I mean, it doesn't have to be, you know, an hour's conversation can be extremely useful to help people point the way. What do we need to pay attention to? And it's it's a, it's difficult. I mean, sometimes, well, people make decisions without fully understanding all of the implications of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it, it's, I'm sure you've experienced this yourself. A consultation can help just people recognize that they don't have to panic. Absolutely. And that's so good to know there are resources out there, especially like yourself, Phyllis, with, you know, your background and your expertise. And then the other part of that is, you know, those that are trying to navigate that and also navigate their own emotions and and those kinds of things, we can definitely help with that as well here at Lakeshore Psychology Services. And there are many others out there that can help also. So don't be afraid to get some people on your team because it's, it's quite a difficult task, isn't it? It is very difficult and people can, you know, I mean, it can cause depression and anxiety in, in their adult children. That is definitely treatable. It's not, and, you know, it, there can be so many elements of that that need to be, that people need to get a hold of so that they don't ruin their own lives, you know? Absolutely. Well, Phyllis, I just have to say I'm so grateful that you were able to join us today on our podcast. Uh, Your knowledge, you obviously have such a wealth of knowledge. And I just want to encourage uh, anybody, if you want to seek her for consultation, uh, I'll put the phone number on the listing here for the podcast as well uh, Mm -hmm. so that you can connect with her. Obviously, uh, feel free to connect with us if we can help with any questions on that. This is a very real issue. A lot of families are facing this. 
And it's really uh, comforting to know that there are people out there like you, Phyllis, that uh, bring this years of knowledge and expertise uh, in terms of navigating these waters. So thank you again for joining us today. Really appreciate that. Okay. You're certainly welcome. I enjoyed it. I did too. Well, you take care of yourself, Phyllis, and thanks everybody for tuning in. Uh, please feel free to forward this podcast to others uh, that you feel like may benefit from it. And wishing you the best. Thanks again for tuning in. Phyllis, you take care. Okay, very good. Thank you.